In this week's episode, we sit down with Brett Scott, author of Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. In the book, Scott guides the reader through the undercurrents of the banking and technology industry to create a compelling argument on how the two are mutually reinforcing market efficiencies that threaten the existence of cash. Risks of the decline of cash go beyond concerns of surveillance, loss of privacy, and declining market competition to a world where, quote, hyper-connected markets burrow into the deepest parts of our being. As depressing as that sounds for a Friday, it's actually a great episode, and so we hope you enjoy it. All right, welcome, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We like to start out with our guests by asking them a bit about their origin story and how you got to where you are today. Could you walk us through that? Sure. I'll try to do a short version of that. Origin story, I studied, I'm from South Africa, I, but I also studied uh, anthropology. I, so I guess a lot of my work has a sort of quite like anthropological side to it. And I also studied history. So that's my kind of academic background. But in 2007, I went and joined the financial sector and worked in high finance for a couple of years. And that was actually come, that came out of a kind of my anthropological background. I, I was quite like a politically left wing, but I was quite frustrated by lots of the analysis of the financial sector and the way it was spoken about. It always felt quite detached. So I was, became quite interested in actually exploring the financial sector, seeing how it worked seeing kind of getting some sort of personal embodied experience of it if you want if you want to, that's one way of putting it and um so i did that around during the financial crisis and so worked in the financial sector and then i left there and went into working in alternative finance and financial activism and various forms of campaigns around the financial sector so financial reform campaigns published a book called the heretics guide to global finance hacking the future of money and yeah i mean that's a kind of that, that was my sort of how i built my profile and then i guess i started getting involved in the crypto world but also in the sort of like the tech scene partially because my first book i was writing a lot about alternative finance and lots of people in the technology sector sort of viewed themselves in the early fintech scene they kind of viewed themselves as being disruptors Right, so they often had a self-image of being alternative finance practitioners, right? Which is quite a different definition of alternative finance to what was in the sort of alternative economy movements and the alternative economy movements, like the co-ops movements and you know local banking and sort of local currencies. That was one concept of alternative finance, but in the tech sector, there was this idea of alternative finance as being fintech. So I kind of got drawn into a lot of that world. And anyway, you know, fast forward. Years, and this has led to me writing Cloud Money, which is all about essentially big tech meeting big finance and the sort of dynamics of, of that process and then and how the monetary system kind of fits into that. So yeah, I mean that's a very, very broad brush description of my background. Cool. And it seems like that experience has really put together kind of the background and the, the main arguments that you make in cloud money. And can you walk us through the first couple of chapters of the book specifically go into a view of kind of the, the modern central bank and commercial bank architecture and, and the accompanying kind of financial technology landscape that I think is different from the way that a lot of us think about it. And I'm wondering if you could just walk us through your thinking around. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the book's actually kind of split into three parts where the first part, I'm, 
I'm looking at the monetary system and the different sort of players in the monetary system. And the second part, I'm looking at the sort of financial technology industry and the fusion of big finance and big tech. And the third part, I'm looking more at the kind of crypto movements and these sort of backlashes against that and then kind of trying to sort of weave it into one big narrative. And But yeah, in the first part, one of the th- things I've really been trying to convey, because I do lots of work around the so-called concept of the cash, you know, the cashless society, which is a term I really hate because it doesn't really describe anything. It's this kind of like vacuous term, right? But uh, in the, my initial objective in the first few chapters is to sort of really highlight to people that there are, there's more than one type of money in society. So, you know, if you're in the US, the US dollar is not a single currency. It's actually at least three different currencies with the same name. And, you know, and there's different issuers for these things that you've called dollars. So, you know, the first issuer is, you know, state institutions like the Federal Reserve and you know, the Treasury who will issue physical cash, right, which is a kind of first tier form of money. But then your sort of secondary issuers are the commercial banks who issue the second tier digital money. And then there's even tertiary issuers like PayPal and players like that. So the first few chapters, I'm kind of sketching out the dynamics of how those different parts of the monetary system interlock. And I guess one of the sort of main metaphors I've been trying to use, which is one of the sort of key metaphors in the book, is around casinos. I don't know if you recall this part, or, but this is, you know... I found the book like very interesting in terms of just this sheer number of metaphors in the book. And I thought it was like, it was almost like listening to like a Martin Luther King speech. I mean, it was very, and that's what I liked about the book because I feel like anyone without a finance or economics background could understand the book and kind of- Yeah, you know, some people love metaphors, other people don't. So it's kind of, I'm quite heavy on metaphors normally. It's one of my big sort of things I try to use because metaphors often create visual imagery for systems that don't have visual imagery. It creates a sort of a picture in your mind for something that's otherwise quite hard to visualize. But um, one of the reasons why I created this sort of this particular metaphor about casinos, which I'll go into, is over the years when I do talks about money, I always get these kind of conspiracy theorist types who will be in the back of the room somewhere, and never to be like some old guy who will like at some point stand up and be like, you know, the reason we're in this mess is because of fractional reserve banking. All right. And they'll always like bring up this sort of a particular story about the monetary system. All right. And I'm sure you probably find this a lot. Should of- have never got off the gold standard. That was the problem. Yeah. A lot of this kind of stuff, right. It's around what real money is and so on. So this fixation upon what true money is and the sort of like monetary system being a Ponzi scheme and so on. You know, you've heard this language a lot in the crypto circles, I'm sure, right? And so certain parts of the crypto world, this is very, very prevalent, but it's also prevalent outside of the crypto world. You find it in many people, actually across the political spectrum as well. But I always found one of the biggest mistakes people were making in these metaphors was that they assumed that there was one type of money in society, right? So, you, for example, if you ever heard there's a conspiracy theories around all well, those sort of conspiratorial t- descriptions of fractional reserve banking they'll say stuff like you know you put your money into the bank but it's not really there they've given it away to somebody else and it's like this this whole idea that there's there's a single form of money so what i really wanted to do was to sort of show how what actually is going on and sort of how banks create money and so this casino metaphor is very useful so i ask you to imagine going into a casino and just um, with the wadge of government cash you hand it over to the cashier and they give you chips 
right? And those chips are a privately issued form of secondary money, as it were, that can be used within the confines of the casino, right? So you actually have two forms of money now. You have the government cash sitting with the cashier, and you have this, these chips uh, circulating around the casino. And this is actually a very, very useful starting point for understanding a lot of dynamics of banking, because the banking sector actually does something quite similar. If you deposit government money into a bank, they don't store it for you. They just issue you their own digital chips. So they issue that you the digital equivalent of these of chips. So, and most of our monetary system is made up of these privately issued bank chips. And one of the big things that banks can do, obviously, is that they can issue far more of these chips than they have in government money, which is then what's referred to as fractional reserve banking. But the whole point is what's referred to as the cashless society is really the situation where you're moving away from government cash and use, moving to these privately issued bank digital chips, as it were. Now, there's limits to this metaphor, but it's a good initial way to show that there's actually these two forms of money. And actually, you can then have this tertiary form where players like PayPal can take those bank-issued chips and then issue you a third type of chip. And actually, stablecoins are the same as that. Stablecoins are also basically, at least the, the ones that are backed, are basically a tertiary form of, of money. And so I was just trying to show this. And then from there, you can work out lots of the sort of politics. You can start to think about, okay, what happens when you just move to a society where you're having to use these bank-issued digital chips for everything? You see all the surveillance implications, you see the exclusion implications, and so on. So the book kind of starts from that description. And so this ties into what you were saying earlier about your experience in kind of high finance and then going into this world where people are speaking of themselves as kind of alternative finance or... And this alternative finance, really, a lot of these entrepreneurs set out to disrupt a lot of the market incumbents. And from your writing, it seems that you believe that that is not silly, but almost naive in a lot of way because of the architecture of the, of the modern kind of monetary system and the associated digital payment architecture. Well, again, I think before answering that, it's worth making the distinction between what type of alternative finance we're referring to. In what's sometimes called the alternative economy movements or new economy movements, there's different terms given to these people who've got a different idea of how the economy should be run. You'll find a whole series of ideas about how to reform the financial system. So from local banking through to cooperative banking, through to social ethical banking and so on. All right. So that's the kind of world of reform of the financial system via building new models. But then in the world of tech, where, as I was sort of mentioning, the fintech world likes to perceive itself as reforming the financial system as well. But largely what's often happening in the fintech world is they're just automating aspects of the financial system. So they're taking the same financial system and trying to make it faster and more automated, really. And you can apply that to different parts of finance. And actually, this is very sort of quite bog standard process and normal capitalism. You know, you'll always have an incumbent version of an industry with its incumbent players and its incumbent elites. And at any one point in a capitalist system, there will always be a group of people who perceive themselves in sort of revolutionary terms as sort of out there to, to change and disrupt the incumbent system. And, you know, right now, at least around 2008, 2009, 2010, that sort of mentality was located in the fintech industry. A lot of these entrepreneurs were perceiving themselves, they had a self-image that they were out to disrupt. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you can see it in the names of, of some of these companies, like there's like Revolut, for example, which is very much like we're 
And, you know, Revolut was basically just like an, a sort of interface pasted over the normal banking sector. But because it was bringing this kind of like appified experience, it sort of perceived itself as a disruptor. But really, if you sort of zoom out and just cut through the kind of BS around all that stuff, you basically see that they're just engaging in a sort of automation process. And really what that ends up doing in the long run is it sort of lowers the costs for the banking sector and thereby enables it to spread into parts of society that were previously resistant to it. Okay, so actually FinTech and these groups is really about expanding the banking sector and expanding this industry, right? Which is actually, you know, whether you think that's a good thing or not really depends on your view of the economic system. But often what what it'll be referred to in sort of mainstream circles is, you know, financial inclusion. It's like the system will expand to absorb more people, right, through this automation by lowering these costs. But in the process, the banks stay as powerful as ever and actually get even more powerful because they're absorbing more and more people. All right. So the fintech sector hasn't actually disrupted the banks. It's often just been absorbed into it or tacked on top of it because a lot of the fintechs plug into the underlying infrastructure that's run by the banking sector. I could go into more detail about this, but I mean, this is... I think it's worth going in. I think it's worth continuing on this for a little bit. I mean, I, I have some... You know, when I was reading the book, I mean, one thing that came out, and I think you mentioned this in the introduction, you, you say, look, so much of the literature and kind of the mainstream writing on this over the past decade has been so positive. I'm almost going to go yeah, yeah, so far in the other direction. And so I found myself a little bit in the book saying, or kind of thinking to myself, well, there's actually been some really positive outcomes from the advent of fintech as well. You've got, you know, even if you look at things like the ability for the middle class to now trade or kind of retail investment in the US or the fact that we still, after so much time in people trying to extend savings accounts and credit in, I hesitate to use the word developing nations because you also have a bit of criticism around that in the book, but in kind of poor countries, we still have this environment where you've got 2 billion people or 1.7 billion people that are unbanked. And so I just, what I was trying to ease out in the book as I was reading it, what is the alternative here? Right. Like, how do we extend the benefits of finance into to the unbanked, to those that don't have access today without these systems? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's worth noting, as, as you say, I was, I'm trying to sort of fill in the dark side. So one of the objectives in the book is to sort of yeah put the other side of the story in, because often the sort of narrative we'll find in the sort of dominant innovation media and so on is this idea that, well, for a start, all this technology and all these changes, you know, the end of cash and all this kind of stuff are driven from the bottom up by ordinary people. Secondarily, that is all for our benefit. Okay. And this is a very typical presentation that you'll find in many different groups. Um, So I'm filling in the sort of other side of that, the counterweight to that, which is actually frequently the systems are pushed from the top down and frequently they're actually more in the interests of large players than they are in the interests of us, as it were, right? But I'm also kind of coming at this from a sort of like a trying to cut through inauthenticity, which is a sort of more like an existentialist position, right? There's a huge amount of inauthenticity in the way these things are described. Now, I'm not for a moment saying that capitalist systems don't end up providing benefits for people. I mean, we have huge amounts of things in the world produced through our economic systems that you could say are positive, all right? And this is a kind of, an ongoing process. But there's also a kind of, how do I describe this? This is quite like a 
tricky thing to describe. There's a kind of like a futility to a lot of the capitalist narrative. All right. So like what's often happening in technological change is your economic system is expanding through new technologies. And then you will find yourself that if you do not adopt the new technology and that if you do not join in, you get thrown out, basically. All right. So really, it's a kind of a coercive process, which may or may not have benefits for you. But in the end, it's not really up to you. It's not your choice. It's not driven by you. You'll find yourself in situations in society where you're basically forced to adopt these types of technologies. Otherwise, you will be excluded. All right. And that's the reality for many people. And again, you can then choose to put a rosy spin on that by saying, well, this is good. I'm getting new access to all sorts of things. But if you rewind in time, you know, back to sort of different points in society, a lot of these things were not needed by people precisely because we had different economic structures, right? So, but if you do find yourself in a global capitalist system that is dependent on big finance and you don't have a bank account, you will perceive yourself as being excluded and you might actually generate a mentality that you want this thing all right so in a sense i'm trying to like put the sort of existentialist spin on this stuff saying you know we're sort of captured by these thought systems that imagine that what we're really that we desire all these things yeah i think actually yeah definitely i think that that makes a ton of sense because it's a really difficult argument to articulate i find because i've tried to make a similar one in the past which is essentially like you know, if you had never had to labor for a wage before, which is fewer and fewer people every year, right? Like then the concept doesn't even really make sense to you because you've had, there were the vast majority of us were born into a commons up until like the 1200s, 1300s, whenever the enclosure of the commons happened, right? And then that spread through the state-based system of governance throughout the entire world. So it's really hard to tell people and say, actually, did you know that this could be like a inflection point in time where you may have a choice to adopt said, said thing or not, right? Yeah, and I yeah. find like that's kind of the argument that you're kind of making. It's really difficult because it's very challenging it, to make. It, yeah. And then furthermore, like when you say that some of the some of the the authenticity argument, right, that you're making is kind of like uh, it's more um, like okay, here's an example. I think it was Hans Rosling or one of the other like progress science people who were basically, you know, they point to the. I call them the, the, the charts people, right? Because like, he can't, like, look at the progress happening. Look at the charts. Progress is happening. Of course, it's happening, right? And like one of the, I don't think it was Rosling. It might have been someone else. But essentially, the argument is something like, look, look at these folks from, from Mozambique, right? Like they, before they used to live on uh, 25 cents a day, and now they live on three or what have you, right? It's amazing, right? Like the, the progress here. And it's like, and I tried to use this to articulate the enclosure argument, which is like, actually, before their economic system and way of relating had been enclosed by the money system, you know, first it had to be enclosed and valued at 25 cents per day. There's no way for us to actually say whether or not this has been net good for them. Now we just yeah, look at the number, yeah. right? Well, so one, like, of, one of the metaphors that I, it's not actually a metaphor, it's a kind of like a reality that I, I show to help illustrate this because it's a very tricky political point to make about the what I think called like, like the futility or the sort of, of technology or the, the neutralization processes that, that occur in our economic systems. So imagine yourself on the outskirts of Los Angeles, right, as a teenager. Now you're sitting on the outskirts of Los Angeles and you want to get across the city, you know, 10 miles away, all right? And let's, for example, say you got a, I don't know, you got a girlfriend or something who lives 10 miles away on the other side of the city. And you're really frustrated because you don't have a car to get across the other side. And you're like angsting away being like, I really need a car in this situation. I really need this car. It would be, it would empower me. It would bring me freedom, et cetera. All right. 
Now imagine a person from like, you know, 800 years ago or something, you know, from the prehistoric times or something, sort of teleporting in through some time, time travel device into the situation and seeing this teenager angsting away about the fact that they, like, they don't have a car. And then just like the person saying, why do you live 10 miles away from your girlfriend? You know, why do you guys find yourself in this situation to begin with? What is the structure of your society that you end up so far away from each other, right? And the reason that if you're in Los Angeles, you end up so far away from everyone is because the motor industry, the automobile industry has changed the structure of the economy such that everyone lives very far from their places of work, lives very far from everything, right? So in that situation, if you go now and you make an argument, that teenager might have a self-image where they say, the car industry is empowering for me. It's, it will bring me convenience. It will bring me these things. In reality, that person's captured by the chokehold that the auto industry has urban environment. Okay. But they might perceive it as liberation. Now, we, we have a very similar thing with many of our technologies. We perceive them as liberation precisely because if we don't have them, we get excluded from our economy that's been altered by that technology. And I think a very similar thing is happening right now is to sort of move towards digital payments. People might have the self-image that it's convenient and so on. But really, if you are stuck in this economy that's captured by big tech and big finance, what's really often happening is that if you do not adopt this, you start to get ever more excluded. So there are these sort of coercive effects going on that you then turn into a positive narrative by imagine that it's, imagining that it's bringing you convenience and so on. But really, it's a type of, type of capture. And you might argue that that capture is fine, right? But you've got to be aware of those trade-offs. So you say, I'm prepared to get captured in order to access these super large-scale economies, right? But this is a lot of alternative economic design is about like, okay, can you mess with the parameters of that? Can I lower the scale of the economy by changing the technology? Can I change the sort of the power dynamics of who owns it and so on? So I think that's, you know, the kind of approach to take. Yeah. And I might be like, you know, I'll kick this back over to Martin to get us on track because I could rip with you on this forever. But, but I think <laughs> like for me, all I've ever wanted, and I think this is where you and I might disagree, Brett, but all I've ever wanted is for people to be awake to that choice and be able to see it as a choice. And then the part where we don't disagree on is I think that potentially maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm dreaming too, some of the stuff might happen in blockchains. Huh? We'll see. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's one of the big sort of claims being made in a lot of crypto circles and Web3 circles is precisely this idea that you could maintain large-scale economies whilst changing the power dynamics. Because bear in mind, many other alternative economy movements, when they see those power dynamics, say maybe what you should do is lower the scale. Because lots of what technology does is increase scale. Right. Digital technology in particular is all about increasing scales, like planetary scale systems. All right. And that in turn comes with a bunch of trade-offs, like ever-increasing alienation, ever-increasing potential for the power to be disguised. All right. Google and these players get massive precisely because of their sort of they are reaping from this gigantic scale. All right. So I think what the crypto movements are intuiting is this idea that, okay, well, we can kind of like we don't have to forego scale so we can get lots of stuff from around the world, but we can somehow also like change this to become more horizontal, right? And whether that's a kind of pipe dream or not is sort of up to, you know, I'm not saying it's not possible, but that's, I guess, the intuition. Yeah. So I want to get into the crypto and 
whatever we want to call it, DLT Web3 space. But I want to start. No, 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 no. I just think it's so important to start with your to start with your kind of thesis around why fintech is not actually does not in, in many cases, the entrepreneurs that set out to try to create solutions to the consolidation of market power in the finance industry and the and the tech industry and them working together, why this in your view doesn't happen, right? You actually write in the book, you know, banks let the fintech sector run the experiments funded by the founders and VCs. And if they are successful, buy them, copy them, or offer to run the background plumbing they require for their platforms. And then you continue later. What begins as a story about a startup raising early seed funding turns into a story of the same company's acquisition by a bank or its new partnership with Visa or Amazon. The ones that do not manage to integrate into corporate capitalism like this disappear, turning into archived emails that slowly fade from consciousness. You had a lot of exposure to this kind of because you were actually, you were at Canary Wharf, you were in other ecosystems. And so the what, can you just explain what you saw in these ecosystems and why there was so much capture of these innovators by the market incumbents? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean bear in mind the banking sector Banks are huge entities, huge political entities, all right, that have a lot of things to do, right? If you're, if you're the CEO of a bank, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. It's a big ship and you're trying to like work on multiple fronts at once, right? You're, you're dealing with the lobbying government. You're dealing with, you know, your existing legacy customers. You're trying to like build out new stuff, but you also just the actual management of large scale risk in a big financial institution is a big job. So, you know, and this is quite a sort of blunt way or maybe anecdotal way to put it, but if you're in the board meeting at a bank, stuff like what's our new app going to be is, is sort of like down the list, right? Other stuff would be like, you know, oh, by the way, we're massively exposed to like Russian companies in the midst of a geopolitical crisis. What are we going to do, right? Those are the kind of questions that bank CEOs often have to deal with. And so, and of course, they're, they're operating at a much larger scale. So it's much harder to sort of change these institutions. Whereas if you're running a sort of fintech startup, like you don't have to think about any of that stuff, really. I mean, I mean, you probably do, but at some level, but really you're much more specialized. And so fintech companies were often way more fast, precisely because they didn't have any legacy business. They're way more faster at, at um, essentially trying to create apps Right. And many fintech companies, that was their original thing that they were doing. They were often trying to automate the front end of the financial sector, right? the service layer, as it were. So you know, rather than you getting service from bankers, you give yourself self-service via an app. Okay? And that, the sort of secondary part of fintech would then be to sort of automate the back end processes, which is the decisions being made that would have been made by a banker previously. So actually we're going to automate the decision of, of who gets a loan and so on, right? So there's always different elements of fintechs want to automate. But bear in mind, banks have an automation impulse. Banks are operating at massive scale. They want automation technology. It's just that they're slower to do it than fintechs. So there's obviously a huge incentive for the banking sector to kind of cultivate the fintech industry, right? Because in the end, the banks are after the same thing as the fintechs, right? And if, you know, Barclays is there like managing or, you know, Bank of America is managing its legacy portfolios and it has like, because actually if you think about a startup team, it could just as easily be a specialist division within a large corporation. It's like the same size teams often. It's like, you know, 20 people. So for like, you know, for them to 
you know, they're kind of let these fintechs do the work and then offer to, you know, absorb them and so on. And actually level 39, which is the sort of place I start the book at, was precisely, you know, it, it had that vibe entirely. I mean, a lot of these entrepreneurs were depending on selling to large financial institutions once they had made a successful product. This was how you exit your investment. This is how the venture capitalists exit the investment. You're either hoping that somehow it develops its own legs, all right, or else you're hoping that a bank buys you up or another financial institution buys you up, which is often what happens. And, you know, I'm not saying this always happens. There have been, you know, notable exceptions. But bear in mind, when there are notable exceptions, when there is a, a sort of fintech player that manages to become big, basically becomes part of the establishment, all right? So fine, you have a slight sort of surface appearance change to the financial sector. But like in the UK, for example, the big five banks are just as powerful as they've ever been, despite, you know, all these these years of fintech, right? So it's not like they're somehow getting less powerful because of fintech technology. It's like, so I think that's one of the big arguments I'm making. But of course, you know, in sort of state you know, and, and so this, for example, say the UK government, they often perceive this as positive because they're saying, well, this will help us to extend financial services to people and so on. And again, going back to that point about capture, if you do find yourself in an economy which is dominated by these institutions and you don't have access, you will perceive yourself as being excluded, in which case these platforms will then manifest in your, in your world as being some kind of liberation, Right when they turn up to say, okay, we're going to give you access now. So I think that's sort of, does that make sense? No, it makes total sense to me. I mean, going back to the example you use of the car industry and, you know, in Sloan, I don't remember when it was, but uh, General Motors kind of bought up a lot of the light rail industry in the US uh, 80, 90 years ago, and then essentially shut it down in order to increase demand for cars, right? And so that's why you, you don't have the same sort of rail infrastructure in the US that you might have in a place like Europe. And so I guess what I'm trying to understand is your biggest concern, the scale of these institutions, is your biggest concern, the ownership structure of the institutions? Or would you prefer, like, do you prefer kind of that we have uh, more innovation within the market driven by smaller entities? Like, what do you see as the solution here? Because it seems almost teleological. It seems like it's going to like we're, this is a, a system given the competitive dynamics of driving efficiency within the actual business models that we're moving to greater and greater scale. And I'm just wondering, one of the things sure, that I, yeah. I came out of the book as is like, what outside of politics do you think are the solutions to this? In the book, I'm not really claiming that there is another solution to it, right? Actually, oh. you know, one of the big things I'm doing in the book is making it a defense of the cash system. Now, cash is a huge system. So in terms of scale, it's a very, very large scale system. So physical cash. All right. The reason why physical cash is demonized is precisely that it doesn't really go along with the grain of corporate capitalism. It doesn't fit into the automation impulse. It doesn't allow itself to be integrated into large scale digital systems. It's inherently localized. It's inherently physical. It's inherently peer to peer, even though it comes from a centralized issuer. Right, it basically has this nature to it, but it's a very large scale. Okay, and actually, if you're being getting real about the politics of monetary systems, the cash system is crucial. Right, it's a lot more important than many fintech players. Right, even though the rhetoric or the ideology in our economic system pretends that it's not crucial. Right, in reality, it's actually a far more advanced system than people give it credit for, and actually probably will become more and more crucial over time. 
All right. So I'm cutting against this idea that sort of super fast transnational digital systems are always superior, right? I'm, I'm making a case for to say that, okay, it's true within the, if you sort of press play on corporate capitalism, just let it run, it will try to destroy the cash system because cash stands in the way of scaling, okay? Cash inherently has the sort of, well, if you think about it in the early phases of capitalism, cash is very crucial in extending the power of the monetary system, right? So it used to be, yeah, I was going to bring up like the Euro dollar, dollar market, right? And so, and, and kind of the overseas dollar market, I would see that as a pretty important cash system that, as you were saying, extended kind of the power of the reserve currency. But can, yeah, so, so I mean, this, it's at the, in the current phase of global capitalism, cash has become something perceived as that's something that slows things down, right? Which is why the ideological tide has turned against it. But at some point, it would have been at the leading edge, Right. Now, in this particular context, if you're concerned about stuff like, if you have a sort of like, let's say a more like left-wing critique, cash becomes seen as something which sort of stands in the way of the consolidation of big tech and big finance. But even if you are a centrist who's in the sort of mainstream circles, right? If you're like a policy person and sort of, this is also a huge issue for you because actually the monetary system large often depends upon its tethering into the cash system, right? So it's, Politically, cash is quite fascinating because it has these sort of anti-capitalist elements nowadays, but it also has this like highly capitalist thing in, the sense of, in terms of financial stability, all right? In the, it's not in the interest of Visa and MasterCard and these types of players that have a cash system, but it's in the interest of the overall economy. So one of the things I'm making a call for is for a bunch of different political groups across the political spectrum to agree to protect the cash system, each for their own different reason, right? And so that's just one of the big things. But in terms of alternative economy movements in terms of like, can you actually build alternatives? Well, that's a sort of slightly separate question because obviously cash is a legacy system. It's something that already exists. But I'm, in the book, I'm not heavily focusing on, you know, how you would build, you know, cooperative economies and so on. Albeit that would be a great topic for like a next book. I mean, I have this newsletter, which I write, which is Altered States of Monetary Consciousness, which is more towards thinking about proactively about alternatives. But yeah, I've been skirting around your question. I've kind of no, no, no. I think that's fine. I mean, I think the last chapter went into a bunch of detail on on what you kind of called one of the definitions of alternative finance, which is also called kind of the social solidarity economy, right? And so, you, if you look at kind of mutual credit systems, we had an entrepreneur looking at the mutual credit space earlier. So one of the things I don't really think, and the way I sort of think about stuff, it isn't really. I'm often imagining sort of counterpowers and almost like chess, like a chessboard. You know, I don't fantasize about you know local currencies or something like taking over the world i'm interested in alternative economy stuff like that in terms of its relative position and how it provides forms of counterpower all right but i'm not one of these people who's like all we got to do is like convince everybody that they should use mutual credit systems or something right and yeah, yeah, I think the, the metaphor in the book that I thought was really good was kind of the bicycle versus the car, right? And so the bicycle yeah, yeah. become this very important kind of mode of transport that a lot of people prefer. And you're not trying to replace the, the car, but you're trying to set up systems within societies that allow for an understanding of the importance of kind of multimodal transport. And here you have the same thing where rather than going to war against cash, recognizing the importance of cash, particularly for marginalized communities to 
to still have access to the banking system and to still have access to monetary systems in a lot of places where they don't. I mean, I have some, there's some nuance to kind of this around, but, but we don't need to go into it because we don't have all the time in the world. We could talk about this particular topic and, <laughs> sure, and the yeah. nuance around it. And, you know, but yeah, the, that, that point about multimodal systems is very important in the book, right? Because some people, some people misinterpret my perspective as being like, are we all going to use cash and stuff, right? But I, you know, I, I use this thing about, you know, bicycles versus cars, how the, the industry, the digital payments industry presents cash as the horse-drawn cart of payments, when really it's the bicycle of payments, right? It's like the public bicycle system versus the Uber system. So digital payments in the mainstream form are essentially the private Uber of payments, right? And if we're in the, the transport metaphor, you know, you might like Uber, it doesn't mean you want Uber to control your entire transport system, right? So, and so if you think about economic design and economic resilience, it becomes important to have these multimodal systems. And actually, you can think about a lot of these like alternative economy movements from like this as well, like co-ops and so on, as being within that field of trying to create sort of uh, resilient alternatives. And I think that's a more useful perspective than sort of engaging in these like universalizing things we try to imagine in the entire world under a single single systems. Yeah, we had um Tamara Hellenius from Common Stack on the uh on here, you know, seven or eight episodes ago. And I think one of the questions I asked was like, how do we scale the kind of social solidarity economy? And she said she was like, we don't, right? There's this is more about having kind of a plurality of ideas and a plurality of systems to build resilience across yeah, yeah different modalities. Absolutely. So I want to get into the web three stuff, but I don't want to get there too quickly because I want to talk about the other. So there's, there's one element of the war against cash that is in the book, at least driven by consolidated market powers within finance and tech that are pursuing efficiency, given their, the, the mandate of their owners at the expense of, well, at the expense of market inclusion, at the expense of competition at the expense of kind of all of these macroeconomic dynamics. There's a second element of this that is more around privacy and surveillance, which I don't think we should leave out before we go into the Web3 conversation. And so can you just talk about your concerns there? Because I think the way that you discuss those concerns, both in the context of whether or not the payment system is owned directly with a central bank through a CBDC or through an intermediary like a commercial bank, there's concerns in both scenarios. And I think it'd be helpful to highlight highlight those concerns in detail. Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, one of the easiest ways to, in a sense, warn people about the dangers of so-called cashless society is really the surveillance element, right? So people are already kind of aware about surveillance dynamics and other types of big tech stuff, but we're often, people have sort of kind of yet to get as sensitized to the idea that, you know, these digital payments are leaving these huge data trails, but obviously this is what's going on, right? So or what's referred to as the cashless society is a euphemism that basically refers to a bank-dominated society, right? So where essentially banks will always stand between you and anybody else you're trying to pay, right? And from there, you can basically work out like everything that's a concern in terms of, obviously that brings huge amounts of data to the banks, but not only to the banks, but also to the think players like Visa and Swift and all the other sort of intermediaries who are involved in this process. And increasingly, 
you know, as big tech platforms integrate with fintech platforms and finance platforms, you know, the, the tech companies get this information too, right? Now, going into the details of who gets what info and what they can do with it is like way, way too big a topic for, you know, so I don't really, did, you know, it depends on what country you're in and what the various laws are and so on and so on. But the basic deal is the basic overarching point is there's in a future cash society, far, far, far more data about financial transactions than we currently have. Right, because every chance, every cash transaction right now is essentially doesn't carry data with it. Well, it does I mean, if, if the people record it, but really, it's 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 a kind of black hole for data. Man, I'll just say, whenever I hear you talk about this, I just like memory hole it in my brain. I forget you ever said it, so I can continue using credit cards. But every time you're right, every time I'm like, damn it, I should be using cash. Shit, 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 shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, bear in mind, it has the same psychological dynamics as every other part of the tech world, which is you know people are can be sort of psychologically aware of it, aware of it, but they sort of choose not to. They kind of compartmentalize it away and just like, well, I'm captured essentially right and this is you know you find this dynamic with you know smartphones right now everyone's essentially addicted to smartphones right now i mean they're clearly addicted to smartphones right it's sort of tapped into something in our brains and it's basically like we don't know how to stop it right and we're aware of this stuff but we're kind of like stuck in this like weird like double think the whole time where it's like well i guess this is i don't know how to live without this so i'm just going to sort of not think about it right but you very, very will quickly think about it if you actually end up in a situation where it starts to be used against you, right? So this whole conversation changes very, very quickly as soon as you move away from countries where people are complacent about the political system and into countries where there's any kind of authoritarian dynamics, right? Very, very quickly, people start to say, okay, we understand. We clearly understand the implications of moving to digital payment systems, right? Because not only can- banking the unbanked is not such a... <laughs> yeah, well, this is one of the things, appeal, to, right? This is what you, you got to be uh, be analyzing. I mean, I actually mentioned, for example, in the book, I talk about you know I was at this financial inclusion event in Singapore, sponsored by the IMF, where some quite high up financial inclusion people were essentially actively bragging about the fact that they were spying on Ugandans, right, to get data from their payments to work, put into credit models, not only from their payments, from their location data to put into sort of AI credit scoring models. So they say, and this will, this will be great because we can watch their movements and watch their payments. And this enables us to then give them greater access to credit because we're essentially spying on them to build up credit profiles, all right? Which is a very common line in all sort of credit scoring startups because you basically need to spy on people, right? To know what their credit worthiness is. But at that very same month, you know, Privacy International just released this report about how in Uganda, you got atrocious levels of state surveillance on political opponents, right? Like it's it's openly known in, in Uganda that this, this happens, right? And so, you know, thinking about, okay, have you guys put two and two together? Have you started to see this connection between suddenly now in some, you know, of course, Uganda is a very high cash society still, but in some hypothetical scenario where basically you would become dependent upon digital payments, you, your state suddenly has a huge new vector to, to exercise power. All right. So among libertarians, it becomes a big concern because they're you know, thinking about state actors. But actually, even if you're not a libertarian and you're just thinking about generalized corporate capture, there's many things you can do with data beyond big brother type activities and beyond you know punishing political opponents. There's many, and this this debate goes beyond payments. This goes into all the sort of debates around AI right now and biases and so on. But there's a huge data frontier being 
in the sort of financial technology world, as it were. I actually introduce these three archetypes in the book to think about this, which is big brother, big bouncer, and big butler. The big brother is the kind of like the state one, the sort of like, you know, the, the sort of, for example, the Chinese government looming over you, sort of watching what your payments are, you know, as you, as you use sort of, you know, Alipay. But then big bouncer these institutions that will use your data to decide whether you get access or not. You know, so I'm imagining this bouncer at a door sort of sussing you out and deciding whether to let you in or not. So big bouncer systems include, you know, fraud detection, credit scoring, all these types of things. And there's a lot of institutions that, are, that specialize in this big bouncer stuff. And big butler is these institutions that use your data to basically sort of manipulate you. All right. They sort of sit behind you and they, they sort of suggest things to you and they try to curate your environment to make you do things. All right. And this is the sort of, and, where, and you get the intersection of those. When those three intersect, you get some very toxic combinations, at least for my tastes. Yeah. Great. That was a, that was a great overview. I, I guess there's kind of another element to this, which may or may not have been spoken about in the book, but we've spoken about it here before, is there's kind of a temporal element to this as well. Because it's not just about the data today, it's the data 15 years from now, right? And the the inferences that can be made about us or the fact that our political systems and in many advanced democracies now are kind of at a point where there's a move towards anocracy or outright autocracy in a lot of these countries. And so we have to be thinking about this just not in terms of our data today. Maybe we don't care today, but we could care in 10 years. We could be denied Absolutely, insurance yeah. coverage, right? So there's this, this element around that as well. I was going to say in the US right now, I've just suddenly seen an upwelling among people concerned about the abortion rulings precisely about this. I was, you know, suddenly people clocked, right? It's like, oh, you know, a kind of new forms of prohibition from an overzealous uh, court, you know, and suddenly, you know, things that you, the cash economy is frequently demonized by people who, you know, are sort of anti-privacy or they think if you, you're trying to hide if you don't want to have your data revealed to everyone. But for a very, very long time, many forms of political activism, many forms of like gray areas in society, you know, from, you know, homosexuality, interracial marriages, all these kind of things rely upon the cash economy, right? They rely upon these zones where you can be integrated into capitalist markets without being watched by its institutions, right? And that's what the cash economy is. And uh, I think that's forms a very important sort of, yeah, I guess like this, this zone, this buffer zone against um, pure enclosure. You kind of extend this even further in the book, you're right. If things you buy can affect everything from your credit score to your insurance premium to your ranking as a good citizen, it'll affect the psychology of your spending and make you self-conscious. And it's it, there's a lot of work that's been done in psychology on this, that when people are watched, it actually changes. They start editing their behavior and they start kind of... Yeah, conforming yeah. to what are the dominant modes of or the dominant kind of beliefs yeah, within yeah. a society and you especially lose a lot you, of that especially that if you're those especially if you're aware that you're in a particular authoritarian context that becomes very important that's the kind of panoptican effect or social cooling sometimes also called so then you we enter this world right where there's this kind of community of entrepreneurs and investors now that think that web3 can solve this and you kind of throw some shade on that in the book. You talk through why you don't think blockchain, DLT, Web3, crypto, whatever we want to call it, is the panacea that that so many of us believe that it is. I mean, I sometimes get called a crypto skeptic or crypto critic. I don't really see myself like that. I'm more a kind of critic of the uncritical narratives. Right. It's not that I deny that there's usefulness to the to the Web three world. It's more the 
I, yeah, a lot of my critique is around the sort of delusions rather than the reality of what you can do with crypto. In particular with Bitcoin, it's one of my big focuses sometimes. I was involved in the early Bitcoin community, but I quickly started to part ways with the, the way that community developed and how it perceives the world. But that doesn't mean I don't see use in these things. You know, so for example, and I can go into more details about this, but I see Bitcoin as a parasitic system. All right. It's a system that parasites upon the monetary system. Now, that's not actually a critique. That's actually quite a successful strategy. Parasites in any ecosystem are actually quite successful. This could be quite an advanced form. There's nothing wrong with being a parasite in an ecosystem. If it works, it works, right? Now, when I call Bitcoin a parasite, I'm not critiquing it. I'm like, this is a very fascinating monetary parasite that, has to, that uses the US dollar system as a host, Right. Now, Bitcoiners get very angry with me because it goes against their self-image. It doesn't go against Bitcoin's reality. It goes against their self-image of competing against the dollar. All right. So it's almost like a parasite, you know, supporters of the parasite, like imagining that actually it's not a parasite, you know, being like, oh, actually it's a, you know, a, a lion on the plane. <laughs> you know, it's a predator. And a, yeah. So this kind of thing. I don't see that as, as being a crypto critic per se. It's more like this is what's actually going on. So, you know, for example, I'll, I'll go have a whole chapter on Bitcoin in the, in the book, and it's about you know, looking at this, this dynamic, saying, you know, in the early community, what you had was many people fixated upon the technological element, right? The, because the greatest sort of, the most exciting part of early Bitcoin was this, this realization that you could coordinate action between people who didn't know each other without having essential parties, right? And that was authentically fascinating, right? And uh, move these tokens between people. But the tokens were extremely crude, right? The, so you had this highly sophisticated system for moving very crude tokens around. And, you know, what those tokens ended up becoming or have become are kind of these, I, I sometimes use different metaphors to talk about it, but I was like almost like collectible, limited edition, digital medallions, all right? Let's call them that, which have like monetary branding pasted over them, which then build up a price in the actual US dollar system, after which you can then use them for exchange via a process called counter trade, which is where you swap dollar price objects with each other via their monetary prices. Now, because it has all this monetary branding pasted over it, that then ends up looking superficially like a monetary transaction. All right. But I can do counter trade with anything. You know, I can do counter trade with bottles of Coca-Cola. And then you, you wouldn't call it a monetary transaction because Coca-Cola doesn't pretend to be a unit of money. All right. So whereas with these, these digital objects in the crypto world, they sort of have this, they kind of masquerade, which they're essentially engaging in kind of form of mimicry, which then is why I end up describing them as kind of parasitic. They parasite upon the imagery of, of money in order to form this kind of new form of exchange. And that becomes authentically interesting if you actually, for example, are a political dissident and you're stuck in a place where you've been excluded from the, the sort of mainstream banking sector. And you say, well, I can use this sort of parasitic object that sort of fluctuates in price, but is able to be exchanged for things. I can use that. That can actually be useful to me. All right. So people like Alex Gladstein, for example, who's this big sort of like Bitcoin for human rights commentator. Often, you know, Alex and me end up sort of locking uh, horns on Twitter precisely because he kind of thinks if you critique Bitcoin, the sort of narrative that you've denied has this usefulness. Whereas I, I openly agree. It's like, yeah, fine. A monetary parasite can be useful for political refugee, for example, but it doesn't mean it's going to take down the dollar. All right. And a large part of my, my critique, and I'll, I'll end here quickly, but of the Bitcoin narrative rather than the reality is that it's often very, very conservative. 
I mean, it's extremely conservative. And so you're having lots of young people being taught very conservative ideas about money, which end up in the long run benefiting the conservatives of the normal fiat money system. Because bear in mind, Bitcoin isn't actually competing with the monetary system. It's riding upon it. So when it's marketing itself or when people are marketing it, they're actually sending out particular messages that end up empowering the conservative factions of the normal dollar system. All right. So the net effect is that conservatives, <laughs> this is the bog standard capitalist system benefit. Right. I think you got to unpack that for the audience. And so I think talking about kind of fixed money supply and, and unpacking kind of the conservative elements of the, the oh, underlying yeah. kind of design of Bitcoin would be useful. Yeah. Like, so bear in mind, if you, let's say you're a person right now with, you know, $5,000 that you've got in savings, which is quite a lot actually for many people. All right. And you're facing a decision about you want to go and invest it in something. You want to buy something, right? And you're faced with a bunch of different options. On the one hand, and you can imagine these options as being sort of contestants who are trying to like win your investment money, you know? So you might see biotech stocks, all right? And the sort of story that a biotech stock is going to tell you is like, we are a biotech company and we make particular medicines. And if you give us money, we will give you a share. If, when, if we succeed in selling the medicines in future, you'll get a return from this. Okay. That's a kind of speculative play on a biotech stock, but you know exactly what you're getting. If you, for example, buy a share in some like land you know, fund, something you're, you're making a play on you know, farmland. Okay? You, farmland is farmland. It doesn't need a whole sort of narrative around it. right? But now imagine Bitcoin's in this lineup. Right now, what does Bitcoin say for itself? If you look at what Bitcoin actually is, it's literally numbers you write out after you exert energy. That's literally what it is. Right. So, how do you market something like that? Well, you got to put branding around it. You got to speak about it in a certain kind of way. The only thing it can use to promote itself is to pretend that it's money. All right. This is the only marketing narrative you have for this thing. It can't claim to be a share. It's not actually land. It doesn't have. It's not a liability issued by a bank, for example, which would be what a normal unit of money is. It's not a liability issue by the state, which is what a normal um, sort of first tier money is. The only way it markets itself is to basically try and pretend to be the sort of monetary system. So the marketing narrative of the speculative object is predicated upon it, it pretending to be money. All right. So when these guys are going out to promote Bitcoin, they have to go around with this critique of why it's a better form of money, right? Which is where all this sort of hard money fixation comes out and this fixation upon gold and so on and, and all this kind of stuff, right? And that critique comes out of bog standard conservative ideology, which is basically like you should constrain the money supply, all right? And we could go into that, but this is very heavily associated with old school conservatism, okay? And the idea, and we could unpack that, why it's conservative in a bit, but the point is, is that, the only way you market it is to pretend it's money. So if, if you're, a, for example, a person who's interested in crypto speculation right now, you're going to end up in all these forums where people are like trotting out Hayek and Murray Rothbard at you. And so you're the 16-year-old who's actually interested in just trading, but you're going to be sort of imbibing all this like conservative monetary theory at the same time without actually buying something that's going to actually compete with the monetary system. So it's a little bit like you know, you're at a school and these guys have brought some moralistic puppet show to the school, teach you about like how the world should be. But the puppet show isn't going to actually change the world, right? And so this is quite, Bitcoin's like a sort of moralistic puppet show brought out in the monetary system, which on net ends up imbibing you with an ideology that within the actual monetary system 
benefits very particular people, notably your creditor class. All right. And this is what people often don't realize in the excitement of their trading and all the rhetoric on media, there's this generalized, extremely conservative ideology. And Margaret Thatcher and crew, Ronald Reagan, all these conservatives would be delighted to have this message being spread among young people right now. Yeah. And I think that the, the point is well made and kind of the sentence that you wrote, you know, people that are trading in Bitcoin can imagine themselves overturning the economic order while pursuing speculative dollar gains in that very same system. Yeah. And so effectively, this fixed monetary the reference point or the referential point of trading in the main currency of the day kind of undermines the, the ideology that this is going to replace that currency. Yeah. So this is Bitcoin. This is not the whole of Web3, obviously. So this is a specific critique about specifically Bitcoin. And I, so I don't want that to be associated with like everything else, right? So I'm not claiming that every aspect of the crypto world is like this. But do you see that the same sort of innovation that you saw in fintech, do you see kind of the innovation that's now happening in Web3 around democratization of ownership and new governance structures? I mean, you touch at the very end of the book on kind of the the revolution in governance that's happened or is happening. Do you see those as being co-opted in the same way um, by venture capital and by kind of the the institutions that perpetuate a fairly unequal wealth distribution today? Or do you see real opportunity here for reforming some of these systems? I see real opportunities. I mean, bear in mind, okay, there's a problem in left-wing communities in general. So people who sort of are constantly critiquing economic systems is that what people who come from sort of like marxist backgrounds and so on are very good at doing is pointing out commodification and co-optation. So for example, when the early narratives about the sharing economy came out, you know, back in 2012 or whenever this was, I forget when the actual, remember sharing economy was like a term, right? And there was all this kind of like rah-rah hype about it for a while. It was like, oh, sharing, we're going to do sharing. And then the first people to like, who seek out the critique are left-wingers who just want to, who want to sort of show you why it's not what you think it is, right? And they're like, oh, actually, this is bullshit. This is actually just like a sort of rental economy, a feudalistic rental economy. It's not a sharing economy. It's Uber is extracting from you. It's like a landlord, et cetera. So like left-wingers are very good historically at seeing the dark side of things that claim to be revolutions or claim to be sort of revolutions in the capitalist system. Okay. What they're very bad at doing historically is seeing when actually there's some authentic underlying change occurring that might actually be altering the structure of the economy in some meaningful way. All right. So what's sometimes called post-capitalism is the sense that actually maybe through a bunch of processes in a capitalist system, you will start to find hybrid forms emerging that don't really correspond to a typical capitalist model. Typical left-wingers are quite bad at spotting that, all right? Whereas actually people who come from more sort of like hybrid ideological backgrounds might be more open to it. Now in the crypto space right now, especially in the sort of non-Bitcoin crypto space, sort of more what people call themselves Web3 and so on, Actually, there's more of this intuition. There's this idea that like, well, we let the technology run. We start to like Trojan horse it into people's worlds via, for example, the profit motive. And it might actually start to authentically alter the structure of the economy. And you might start finding more cooperative forms of ownership. You might find actual authentically better power distributions and so on. And I don't deny that that can happen. The main problem is that the majority of crypto projects still, well, haven't really been implemented and largely still fixate upon the trading of tokens, okay? So that's still where it's at, okay? But many of these 
uh, and they remain, often remain tied to these speculative markets. So I have all these crypto friends who are trying to build out these positive like Web3 platforms, but half of their brain is always plugged into this like, speculative market for their tokens. So I'm looking forward to a time where move away from that and start to get like a lot more interesting and nuanced around how you actually you know build these these authentically meaningful platforms in the crypto governance world it's very very interesting because it's like you know how do you do political coordination at a large scale in these systems because obviously in early crypto that was not a thing people were like the whole point of this is that you escape politics right and this is whole libertarian ideology which was basically a way of disguising power right whereas New wave crypto platforms are starting to be a lot more realistic, saying, okay, we actually got to think about who's on, who's there, giving them sort of say. I think that'll become more and more interesting over time. So I am positive about that, actually. And so, I mean, maybe I'll add one last thing to this long answer, which is on the negative side, I have also seen a whole bunch of crypto entrepreneurs who are basically just rehashing ideas that are already flawed. For example, you see, you know, I've been involved in alternative finance circles and financial reform circles for a long time. So I've seen a bunch of these things already being tried, carbon markets, a bunch of particular like sustainable financings and so on. Like, and a lot of these have pre-existing problems, pre-existing issues in them. But like a sort of naive crypto person comes along, they've never been exposed to these critiques. And they're just like, oh, rah, rah, I'm going to just not implement this in a slightly distributed fashion and imagine with a sort of magical thinking that it's somehow going to be different. All right. So I think we're seeing a lot of that right now where these sort of quite naive ideas have been pushed out, in particular around the commodification of caring economies. And so this then subsequently leads to this idea that maybe crypto will be used just to hyper-commodification of like, you know, caring labor and so on, this, this kind of stuff. Long yeah, answer, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I mean, and we've talked about this a lot on the pod just in terms of how, you know, hyper-financialization or, or commodification of every aspect. And this was another great kind of quote in your book. And I forget, I forget what it was exactly, but it was essentially, you know, we essentially have the market system coming into every single aspect of our lives at this point, or, you know, hyper-connected markets burrow into the deepest parts of our being is the way you phrased it. So if people care about this issue, you know, we're getting up to time here. People care about the decline of cash. People think it's important to maintain this multimodal society. And you know, where should where would you advise that they be putting their efforts? Should they be lobbying their their local governments? Should they be working on new forms of kind of innovative Web three protocols? Like that was one of the things that I came out of the book with. Like, if I care about this, what do I do? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the book doesn't actually, you know, it kind of ends without giving some comprehensive program of how to solve the problem. The there, there is no is- hope, Brett. I'm American. I need the Hollywood ending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Funny because, you know, it's, no, it's- he's also a policy mark. He wants the policy, man. Give him the policy. Okay, yeah. Well, on the policy front, yeah. I mean, so one very blunt, basic thing is protect the cash system, right? I openly state in the book that protecting the cash system is not going to bring about some utopian society. It's just going to sort of stave off dystopian elements in our existing society okay which i think is important politically it's important to do all right so i think it's a really interesting test to see if we have the societal willpower or collective agency to actually stand against forces that are inherent in large-scale corporate capitalist systems so the force within the large-scale capitalist system right now is to destroy non-automated offline things right can you stand against it can you form political counterpart which says, actually, we're not solely subject to these 
economic drives. We were actually able to have other things in our society. We were able to hold space for slower, non-automated forms. So that's an interesting thing for me is to, to form both bottom-up and top-down political action against uh, the cashless society. And on the bottom-up front, that's always hard, you know, but, that, but in some ways that's the easiest, getting people to, you know, forcefully assert their right to use cash, stand up to shops when they're not, not allowing it. But from the top down, there needs to be state action as well, political action to, to protect these systems, okay? Because um, you can't expect people by themselves to, to do it. And often in corporate life, they want the owners to be on the individual. So a lot of big banks will say, let people choose, you know, precisely because they know people are uncoordinated. And people, if you have uncoordinated people standing against you, they're not going to choose against you. All right. So this is why consumer facing campaigns are often very popular among corporates because it doesn't end up really often challenging their power. And so you probably need top down political pushes. But in terms of, you know, that's one thing, but not everyone's interested in doing that. I think I'm very supportive of people who want to get involved in the progressive end of the Web3 world. I mean, I think it's a lot of creativity is there. And I think there are far too many regressive forces in that space. And I think there needs to be people who are going in and doing a pro- progressive uh, versions of it. So I'm very positive about that. And on the monetary front, I'd love to see a lot more experimentation. Well, I personally would like to get involved actually in a lot more of the kind of IOU credit network type systems that, that go beyond the sort of fixation in Bitcoin with a sort of like hard money. I'm interested, interested in sort of peer-to-peer credit money systems. I think that's going to be really fascinating in the future. Cool. Yeah, so I think like... I would chill on top of that. You just to return to the last things you said before we got to Web3 was this commodification that you and Martin were going back and forth on. I think like commodification is, you know, often thrown out by as a, as a Marxist critique and which is totally fine. Like I think it's, it's valid. I think for me, and I think you agree to this to some extent, Brett, is that commodification, it's on, it's on, it's really about by who and for whose benefit, right? Like if I have to now opt into like the commodification of my dating life, God, that has been hell, right? Like there's something written about that every week. If you consider Tinder, the commodification of dating, right? Yeah, like yeah, sure. there's a, that's a place where markets might not want, you might not want them to penetrate much further, right? But I think that, you know, commodity, privacy shielding, right? In Web3, there's a lot of work being done there. That's what I would chill, right? To say like, hey, maybe we can have both. I don't know, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too, where we have yeah, sure, scale. Sure, sure. And also we don't have people looking at um, things that are happening beneath the scenes, right? And there's a lot of folks there. We had Jai on the on the pod from yeah, yeah, Tech. Yeah, sure. We had a bunch of folks. So we had Chris Goes from Anoma Network, which they just launched, Namada, which is a privacy-shielded barter network. So I think like yeah. if that's if that was if that's what you're into, that's another place yeah, to look. and of course resource. Fascinating hybrid models going on. And maybe the one last thing I'll say, if I know we've gone on too long already, but you know, historically there's there's often two different impulses in changing economic systems. Some people want to go against the grain, you know, pull against the vortex, as it were. All right. That's very hard to do. It's strenuous. Lots of anarchist groups, for example, historically pull against the grain. It's like, okay, we're gonna start our commune, we're gonna pull away. We're gonna, this is like exhausting, right? It's like it's like trying to hold a tent down in the middle of like a hurricane, right? And often the world's ended up with all these like dead tent sites of, of projects yeah. that have failed, right? So that's like one impulse pulling away. And then another impulse is going with the grain, which is a typical entrepreneur impulse, which is like, go with the dynamics and then try to sort of like, we'll work with the profit motive, we'll work with the scaling impulse and so on with the vortex and hopefully, you know, kind of get these new principles in. And I think within the crypto world, there is a lot of potentiality to actually sort of make interesting hybrids between those two intuitions, 
where you're sort of partially integrating these things into, into market systems whilst also trying to like authentically create interesting new structures. So I think there is a lot of fascinating stuff going on there. Yeah, or embedding kind of the decentralization of, and I know you've got some, you know, concerns around decentralization at the end of the book as well, but decentralization of or progressive decentralization into the ownership structure and governance structure over time once the market is, once the uh, the project is successful, but baking it into the initial designs so you don't have these perverse incentives that and that lead to market consolidation. So maybe we saw, maybe we could end with some kind of rapid fire questions. If you and Ken Rogoff were in a room together and no one could figure out what would happen in that room? What would happen? Me and Ken Rogoff. Yeah. Because I feel like you, like reading that book, I was like, man, this is just a complete critique of everything that Ken Rogoff stands for. I mean, I have no idea what would happen. I don't know if you'd let me in a room with him, you know, like it's, uh, these guys are quite insulated. They're sitting in there like meetings and little soirees and stuff. I mean, for people who don't know, Ken Rogoff is, you know, he's a former IMF guy, Harvard professor and stuff. And he's very anti-cash. Although he did actually, he actually has moderated his perspective. I think he realized that he was being used by many anti-cash people for their, for their own purposes. And he sort of then, he then moderated to say, I'm, I'm for a less cash society, not for a cashless society. But the damage is already done. He wrote this book called The Curse of Cash. I don't know what will happen. I would, I think I would sing a song to him. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, a, recent <laughs> book, a recent book besides your own that you think everyone should read? I'm trying to think my, I really enjoyed, if you're interested in getting past the sort of scaremongering around the MMT movement, I think Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, is actually very worth reading. In the States right now, there's lots of people who like misrepresent MMT, which is a post-Keynesian, it's a sort of left-wing branch of post-Keynesian monetary theory. And I think the MMT community is doing a lot of amazing stuff in terms of really messing with the narrative around public finance. And I think she does a very good job of showing why. And so, and there's so much straw manning of MMT going on among among so many different groups on both the left and the right. So I think it's really, really worth reading that. I always think Kate Rayworth's book, Donut Economics, is amazing as well. I would always get people to read that. Awesome. And where should people follow you online and stay in touch? Well, on my Substack newsletter, it'll probably be of interest to lots of people who listen to this, and that's brettscott.substack.com. And that newsletter is called Altered States of Monetary Consciousness. And I just write these sort of kind of almost like half meditative, half sort of like catchy pieces about thinking about money. And for the sort of subscribers, they get these like deep dives. I do unboxings of alternative currencies. We go into all the kind of like depths of, of it. And it's, I think that's that's one place. But then uh, Twitter, I'm called Suit Possum, S-U-I-T-P-O-S-S-U-M, which is, I can tell you. Yeah, what I, and I have never possum. forgotten that since I met you. That's how I reconnected with you. I was like, ah, Suit Possum. I think you were yeah, Suit yeah, Possum. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and also to shield your newsletter too, I think you did a very good write-up of Seeds, I think it was, where you got into the the nuts and bolts of how the sort of circular economy that Seeds is claiming to build actually works and its possibilities. So it's super, it, was, it caught my attention. I was like, oh, Brett, I know that guy. I got to reach out to him. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well it's, done. It's, I put a lot of work into it. It's kind of the news, news is on a bit of a hiatus right now where I promote my book, but it'll be coming back at some point in the next few months where I start to do more pieces on it. So yeah. Awesome. Brad, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. I'm a cool baby, a cool cutter.